If you have ever wondered what Mary Poppins has to do with the French Revolution, stay tuned and stay awake for the Pluto and Aquarius episode of Imagine That, a podcast for astrology and archetypes. Welcome to episode three of Imagine That, a podcast for astrology and archetypes. I'm your host, Sean Nygaard, and you can find me on the web at imagineastrology.com. Today's episode is another big episode as we usher in the momentous movement of Pluto into the sign of Aquarius on Thursday, March 23rd at 7.23 a.m. Central Time. And I'm going to begin this episode with the words of Salman Rushdie from his book, Languages of Truth. He says, And when one lives at a hinge moment in history, as we do, as Shakespeare did when he wrote his Protean plays, a moment when everything is in flux, everything is changing at immense speed, when the future is up for grabs and dark storm clouds rush across the sun, and when there are plagues and dragons loose in the world, then it becomes essential to admit that the old forms will not do. The old ideas will not do, because all must be remade. All with our best efforts must be rethought, reimagined, and rewritten. And to do otherwise would be to fail, most lamentably to fail in the pursuit of our art. I think that sets the tone for Pluto's move into Aquarius. Pluto's a powerful planet, a complex planet. And even though Pluto is the smallest planet in the solar system, a dwarf planet, when Pluto switches signs, it's a big deal. So what's in store for this episode that I'm calling Pluto in Aquarius Part 1, Stay Awake? So first we're going to have a look at the dates, and then we're going to have a look at the sign of Aquarius. There'll be a little bit about Pluto, and then we'll dive into history and take a look at previous times when Pluto moved through Aquarius, and then we'll head back to the present to get ready for part two in the next episode. So what dates are we talking about here? Pluto enters Aquarius on March 23rd, 2023, for a bit of a prologue of its movement through the sign. It will station retrograde and then return to Capricorn on June 11th, 2023. Pluto will then station direct and move back into Aquarius on January 20th, 2024, station retrograde again, and return to Capricorn on September 1st, 2024, 
before stationing direct and re-entering Aquarius for the long, long haul on November 19th, 2024. After many retrograde stations followed by direct stations, Pluto will leave Aquarius and enter the sign of Pisces on March 8th, 2043, and will then enter Aquarius again for a bit of an epilogue to its movement through the sign of Aquarius on August 31st, 2043, and will depart Aquarius into Pisces on January 19th, 2044. Now I want to talk about the sign of Aquarius. I've talked about it a little bit in previous episodes. Aquarius is part of the watery part of the sky, beginning with the winter solstice and Capricorn, the myrrh goat, followed by Aquarius, the sign of the water carrier, followed by Pisces, the sign of the fish. This part of the sky sees the return of light from the deepest, darkest part of the year at the winter solstice in the Northern Hemisphere, and with an increasing abundance of water, ushers new life to be born at the spring equinox when the sun moves into the sign of Aries. Now, I really like understanding the sign of Aquarius in the context of its polar opposite sign of Leo. Leo, ruled by the sun, can be seen as relating from the center of things, much like the king or the queen in their castle at the center of the kingdom. Aquarius, ruled by Saturn, who in the ancient world was the edge, beyond Saturn, the darkness of the unknown. So Aquarius takes us further out to the edges, to the margins of society and of the psyche, of the soul. Aquarius takes us to the outer limits. And in fact, when Saturn was in the sign of Aquarius, on September 16, 1963, a little black-and-white television show called The Outer Limits premiered on U.S. television. In a similar vein, I've talked before about The Hunger Games, written by Suzanne Collins, who was born with Saturn in Aquarius, a series of books and a series of movies about Katniss Everdeen, who lives in District 12 of Panem, the district on the outermost limits, the furthest away from the capital at the center. As President Cornelius Snow describes Panem to its citizens, Ours is an elegant system conceived to nourish and protect. Your districts are the body. The capital is the beating heart. Now, to get another idea of Aquarius, we can look to, of all things, a sitcom, one of my favorites, called Hot in Cleveland. The show begins with three middle-aged women, best friends, on their way from Los Angeles to Paris. Their plane runs into trouble 
and has to make an emergency landing in Cleveland, Ohio. Now, these women complain about being middle-aged in Los Angeles because nobody looks at them. Nobody finds them attractive anymore. But when they have to stay the night in Cleveland and they go out into the bars, into the nightlife, they discover that they are hot in Cleveland. The men pay attention to them. If LA is the center, Cleveland, Ohio takes us away from the center and gives us a different perspective on life. If you're middle-aged and past your prime in Los Angeles, as the show sets up, you may just find yourself hot in Cleveland and be able to see things from a different perspective. This is the sign of Aquarius. Now, with a little bit of a spoiler, or a lot of a spoiler, we can also look to the 2022 movie called Vesper. If you haven't seen it, it's a post-apocalyptic science fiction movie. Much like The Hunger Games, in the wake of the apocalypse, humans have organized themselves in capitals and those living away from the capitals. It's a bleak and beautiful movie. The scientists of the capital have genetically engineered and locked the seeds on the planet so as to control the food... And the movie follows a teenage girl who has the original thinking to be able to unlock those seeds. And over the course of the movie, she heads to the capital with her discovery, only to turn around and head further and further away from the capital, further and further away from the center, with the seeds she has unlocked. New life. Fertility. She climbs to the top of a structure built by pilgrims, looks to the capital, she turns 180 degrees away, looking further out from the center, and releases the seeds in that direction. It's an extraordinary moment, a pure Aquarian moment. Now, I find it's worth putting this move of Pluto in Aquarius into the greater context of culture and the movement of the planets creating culture throughout the course of the 20th century. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, I started to notice something changing in culture, and I didn't have astrology to begin to understand it back then. But something was up. And as I started learning astrology and the archetypal symbolism of the signs and seeing it in the culture that I have followed my whole life, I started to understand that I grew up in a culture shaped by and large by the Pluto and Leo generation. Now, Saturn and the outer planets moved through the sign of Leo in the early to mid parts of the 20th century. When I talk about the age of celebrity and the Leo-Aquarius axis, I call this time period, I'm the greatest star. 
Neptune moved through Leo from 1914 to 1929, including the golden age of Hollywood. Life on the big screen centered around a star, a celebrity. Saturn moved through Leo from 1916 to 1919. Pluto entered Leo in 1937 until 1958. Saturn returned to Leo in 1946 until 1949. And then Uranus moved through Leo from 1955 until 1962. Powerful movements of Saturn and the outer planets through the sign of Leo. Now this started to shift the entire culture in 1991, when Saturn entered Aquarius. And it's at this time period where Saturn and the outer planets made their way through Aquarius. I call this time period, everybody is a star. Saturn was in Aquarius from 1991 until 1993 or 94. Uranus was in Aquarius from 1995 then until 2003. Neptune was in Aquarius 1998 through 2012. Saturn returned to Aquarius, as we all know, in 2020 through 2023. And the last part of this move is Pluto entering Aquarius on March 23rd, 2023. If Saturn and the outer planets movement through Leo can be summarized with the classic line, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille then the movement of Saturn and the outer planets through Aquarius brought us the introduction of reality television. The real world debuted in 1992. YouTube became a presence in our lives on February 14th, 2005. And Time Magazine made you, 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 and you, and all of the yous out there all of us, the person of the year in 2006, thanks to our presence on YouTube, in Wikipedia, and on MySpace. And of course, things have changed and grown since 2006 with social media. This arc of culture shows us the nature of Leo with culture created from the heart and the sign of Aquarius with culture created by a Kardashian. To emphasize the nature of Aquarius a little more, I have an excerpt from an article of mine published in the Mountain Astrologer called Saturn in Aquarius, The Difference Between Us. I used three examples, starting with Jane Goodall, Jane Goodall was born with Saturn at 24 degrees, 53 minutes of Aquarius. After reading the story of Dr. Doolittle as a young girl, she dreamed an unusual dream of talking to and living with animals. She wanted to live in nature like Tarzan. At the age of 26, while working as a secretary in London, Goodall was selected to take part in an expedition to Africa. With no training or scientific background and no degrees, only a passion for knowledge, her love for animals, and what is described as monumental patience. 
Goodall soon found herself living her dream on the outskirts of a unique community, the chimpanzees of Gombe, Tanzania, with whom she developed profound connections. She is renowned today for her lifelong advocacy of animal, non-human rights. On a side note, I had the pleasure and the honor of meeting Jane Goodall a few years ago. She truly is a delightful and remarkable woman. Next, Polish author Olga Tokarczuk won the 2018 Nobel Prize in Literature, quote, for a narrative imagination that, with encyclopedic passion, represents the crossing of boundaries as a form of life, end quote. Born with Saturn encased in a stellium of five planets in Aquarius, Tokarczuk at times has found traditional structures inadequate for her writing. Needing something different, her solution has been to innovate her own structure in what she calls constellation novels, novels written in fragments, leaving the reader to determine their own images and meaning. And then we have the television series The X-Files, which debuted on September 10th, 1993, with Saturn retrograde at 25 degrees, 21 minutes of Aquarius. One of its two main characters, FBI agent Fox Spooky Mulder, is consigned to a makeshift office in the basement. As described by one of his superiors, Agent Mulder has developed a consuming devotion to an unassigned project outside the Bureau mainstream, a project later described as a preoccupation with fringe matters. Talk about Saturn in Aquarius. Passionate about investigating unexplained phenomena, including UFOs, aliens, and any array of bizarre events, Mulder was perceived as highly unusual by his FBI peers and his partner, but was rarely daunted in his dedication. So that gives us a strong flavor of Aquarius before we turn our sights over to Pluto and dive into history. Pluto's orbit is 248 years, much, much longer than any human lifespan, so Pluto moves very slowly. When we look at Pluto's previous move into Aquarius, we look to April 4th, 1777. No movies, no big screen, no television shows. So I've used them now while I've had the chance. Now, Pluto is usually associated with power, and Pluto is also associated with riches, which are the riches of the underworld. In a literal sense, Pluto's riches are the metals that are found underground from which we make coins. Pluto's riches are the jewels and the minerals mined from the depths of the earth. But Pluto, as lord of the underworld, helps us understand Pluto in a different way. Pluto in Roman culture was known as Hades in ancient Greece. And to quote a book on Greek myths, 
What can be said about Hades? No living man has ever beheld his face, and the dead do not return from his mirthless domain. He is the invincible one, for death awaits all. With his staff, he drives all in their time into the echoing vaults of his place. No one knows for sure where the entrance is to his subterranean realm. Some say it is in the far west where the sun goes down to darkness. Others that certain caves or chasms conceal an entrance. I like to think of something the late, great Irish poet and priest John O'Donohue said, Your death will make you permanently invisible. Pluto rules the invisible realms. This is the realm of the soul, the realm of the psyche. And while the main gods and goddesses had their various altars in the ancient world, Pluto or Hades had no altar. Or rather, everywhere was Pluto's altar, because his altar was invisible, reflecting the nature of this god. Now, as you can tell from the previous episodes of the podcast, when I'm reading or watching things, I can't help but pick up archetypal flavors that emerge. And years ago, I was reading a book by Joshua Cooper Ramo called The Age of the Unthinkable. It's from 2009, when Pluto was fresh into Capricorn. It's a fascinating book with certain aspects a bit dated, But when I read this part, it got me to thinking about Pluto. He writes, Complex environments, whether they are stock markets or nations, are stuffed with influences that run on different clocks. Scientists say that these systems have a broad timescale. The lives of bugs in a forest, for example, are measured in hours. Those of fish in weeks trees in centuries, rocks in millennia. And sometimes it's hard to pin down when utility begins and ends. Dead trees can continue to play a role in a forest's ecology for decades, providing nutrition and shelter for animals, even as nitrogen leaches from their dead branches into the ground, fertilizing new generations of plants. Now, I almost said planets there because this makes me think of the solar system. Mercury moving quickly like bugs. Saturn may be like the trees where we can count their rings. And Pluto, like those dead trees providing fertilization for future generations. Cooper Ramo also says, This logic is broadly true for all complex systems. And here I'm assuming the solar system is a complex system. He says, The things that linger the longest often have the most profound impact on the system. They tend to be the things we ignore precisely because they do move and change so slowly. And again, I think of Pluto here. Because most of the time, it's hard to talk about Pluto on a day-to-day-to-day basis. It moves so slowly. 
It's much easier to talk about the moon's position. It's much easier to track the sun even as it moves a degree a day. But Pluto operates so slowly across 248-year cycles. I like to think Pluto knows way more than we do. It's seen way more than we have. And if sometimes it seems like it operates quickly, like in 2008 when it moved into Capricorn and we had the financial crisis, I think it's almost like Pluto plans things out long term. And rather than being actually the sudden collapse of a financial system, it's more like Pluto was paying attention to that Jenga tower for a very long time and knew exactly which block to pull out from exactly which level to cause the right disruption. So while it's a mystery, what exactly Pluto will be up to when moving through the sign of Aquarius starting on March 23rd? We can look back to history to understand the archetypal dynamics and the role that we might play over the next couple of decades in particular. And now we can turn to history, that great invisible realm accessible to us through memory and brought to life through imagination. We can look to previous times when Pluto moved through the sign of Aquarius. Now, I want to provide this as an archetypal frame and take into account what I've already said about the sign of Aquarius. So the framework will take us back to 1532, when Pluto entered Aquarius and stayed there until 1553. And then we can look to 1777 through 1798 before heading back to the present. So just briefly and broadly, Pluto moving through Aquarius in the 1500s brought us the Copernican Revolution and the Scientific Revolution. And then in the late 1700s, fueled by the scientific revolution, Pluto moved into Aquarius following the decades known as the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. While Pluto moved through Aquarius, we see the French Revolution. And as the revolution was occurring, and in the wake of the revolution, we have the emergence of the Romantic Era. This is our framework. To begin our journey, we go back and further back and further back still, deeper and deeper into the past, deeper and deeper into the underworld. Looking back in 1543, Nicholas Copernicus published On the Revolutions of the Celestial Spheres, This, of course, demonstrates quite literally the dynamics of the Leo and Aquarius axis. Copernicus published his realization that Earth was not the center around which the stars and the sun revolved, but in fact, the sun was the center around which we revolved. It's hard to imagine 
how radical this was 500 years ago, this realization, because it's something we so take for granted. But back then, the center had shifted, perspectives had shifted, and this all came about due to science. And the archetypal ramifications are profound. It was not just the literal sun revealed as the center, but where the moon was understood in ancient times to be the queen of the night. The sun was the king, the king of the daytime, the bringer of light, the sun shining light on our lives during the day, and the patriarchal king shining light over his people. If you start looking at images of crowns, you might notice that the points of a crown are representative of the rays of light from the sun. Now, the publishing of Copernicus's discovery that the sun was at the center of things launched the scientific revolution. It launched a whole new way of perceiving, a whole new way of thinking, a whole kind of consciousness with light representing consciousness because you can see things. Light pushes away the shadows, pushes away the darkness. And as this appreciation of light increased, and folks like René Descartes, Galileo Galilei, Johannes Kepler, Isaac Newton ushered in scientific thought, and of course Descartes pronouncing famously, I think, therefore I am. Keep that in mind. The decades and centuries transformed into the Enlightenment, or the Age of Reason. The Age of Reason, the Age of Light, began to defy superstition, erase mystery from our days. It promoted intellectual freedom. Now, I find it fascinating that this time, according to one book about the Enlightenment, it was a time when precision became important, and tools, instruments, and measurements became increasingly accurate. And even though Enlightenment thinking and Enlightenment principles began amongst the elite, amongst the educated, these ideas began to filter down. People began to talk amongst themselves. The spread of reason promoted education, learning, knowledge, human progress, ideas of liberty and freedom, because it brought with it a new kind of understanding. When you put these things together and insert decades of debate in the public sphere, people began to question authority. Authority passed on through the centuries by tradition. This is the way it had always been, including the questioning of the divine right of kings. It was beginning to be perceived as unreasonable. Everything was examined, everything was questioned, and foundations began to shake. Now, with Pluto being a complicated, complex planet, it's not surprising that the French Revolution is perhaps one of the most complicated times in history. 
So I'm going to summarize a little bit of it while revisiting and incorporating the things I've been talking about and read once again from an article of mine published in the Mountain Astrologer. This is from the article also available on astro.com called Pluto in Aquarius, When the Center Cannot Hold. Pluto moved through Aquarius from April 1777 to December 1798, a remarkable period of history that included the French Revolution. For the purposes of this article and exploring the themes of Pluto in Aquarius, the French Revolution provides rich material. The seeds of the revolution were sown throughout a large part of the 18th century during the historical period known as the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason, a period that has its own roots in the scientific revolution from Pluto's previous time in Aquarius. The Enlightenment saw the emergence of a plethora of new ideas, philosophies, and fresh possibilities for how human beings can thrive in society and live happy lives. The Enlightenment privileged the pursuit of knowledge, evidenced by the birth of the Encyclopedia, an exhaustive collection of all knowledge at the time, and what we would today call evidence-based learning. Sunlit clarity and observation was valued over the moonlit mysteries found in the shadows. Depth psychology would emerge less than two centuries later to revisit those missing shadows. Paintings during the Enlightenment were realistic portraits aimed at depicting the external world with accuracy and precision based on careful observation. With its focus on reason and rational thought, the Enlightenment began to seriously question the role of religion and the church in society, ultimately aiming to separate church and state and promote ideas of social progress, liberty, tolerance, and equality. Decades of open discussion and debate on these topics, along with the resulting tensions, fomented the air for radical social change, turning ideas into ideals and ideals into reality. On May 5th, 1789, revolution broke out in France with Pluto at 19 degrees Aquarius. By all accounts, the French Revolution is one of the most fascinating, intricate, and tumultuous periods of history, forever changing France, Europe, and Western culture altogether. As revolutions tend to be, it was also messy and full of unforeseen complications. For our purposes, what archetypal dynamics can we see within the French Revolution that help us understand Pluto in Aquarius? Now here I'm going to quote 
from scholar Suzanne M. Desson, PhD. And if you want, there's a 48-episode, 24-hour-long series of lectures available on one of those sub-channels of Amazon Prime in the U.S., but I think it's available on audio, on CD, or on Audible. But Suzanne M. Desson is a scholar and expert on the French Revolution, and over the course of these 48 lectures, she provides a brilliant look at the period of history of the French Revolution into the Napoleonic era. I've tried to understand the French Revolution for years, and anything I've picked up, every entryway that I've tried, failed. I couldn't figure out a way to even begin to understand it. But within the first few minutes of the first episode of Suzanne Dassan lecturing on the French Revolution, I was hooked. So all in all, in the end, I will have spent at least 24 solid hours with the French Revolution. So she says in that series, from the very beginning, the French Revolution was a social revolution. This is key. Aquarius has to do with society. She says the revolutionaries wanted to remake society from the ground up in the name of equality. Before the revolution, French society was structured on a centuries-old tradition of hierarchy based on inheritance and privilege. Inequality was built into the system for centuries. Atop the hierarchy was the king, the centerpiece of the kingdom, sitting on his throne, holding absolute power invested in him by God. Monarch by divine design, shining like the sun. Underneath the king was the aristocracy, the nobility, living in luxury, receiving special status before the law, paying very few taxes or no taxes at all, and making up 1% of the population. Parallel to the aristocracy were the clergy, also making up 1% of the population. Underneath the aristocracy and the clergy were the common people, mostly peasants living in poverty and paying more taxes than anyone else, making up 98% of society. Decades of Enlightenment ideals began to merge with centuries of traditional ways of life under the hierarchical structures of power, profoundly challenging the entire system. Dr. Dasan poses perhaps the most significant question to be asked at such a moment in history, a question most pertinent to Pluto's time in Aquarius. How do you wrench the modern? out of the old. Iconic in the early days of the revolution was the storming of the Bastille, the enormous fortress prison built in the 1300s by the French monarchy to hold its enemies. Over the centuries, the Bastille became a symbol of the injustice and the absolute power of the king and his monarchy. Any threat to the king's power be it a person or even a book, 
could simply be thrown into the murky prison filled with bones and rats. On July 14th, 1789, with the threat of hunger looming, desperate citizens already living in poverty stormed the Bastille, instantly transforming a symbol of tyranny into a symbol of liberty and citizen sovereignty. The revolution proceeded to grow and upend society in a stunning move on August 4th, 1789. The nobility surrendered their privilege, followed on August 26th by the creation of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, the first attempt at writing a constitution for France, advocating for every citizen's right to liberty property, security, and resistance to oppression. The revolution grew unwieldy, unstable, and uncertain, eventually yielding to the terror in 1793-94 to with its infamous guillotine. During this time, the King of France, Louis XVI, was unable to manage the revolution, the symbolic and political center could not hold everything together. The king was executed at the guillotine on January 21st, 1793. Over the course of the first five years of the revolution, French society and its long traditional history were pulled up by the archetypal roots. Now, a fascinating piece of culture during this time is the premiere of Mozart's opera, The Magic Flute, in 1791. It depicts Sarastro, the high priest of the Enlightenment, the high priest of reason, defeats the Queen of the Night. So this period of history, this long period of history, is rather fluid from the scientific revolution into the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason, into the French Revolution. While the revolution was taking place, inspired by Enlightenment ideals, and Mozart depicting the triumph of light over darkness, of day over night, we also find the roots of Romanticism. Now, I want to say a little bit more about the roots of Romanticism, but it's important to look at the chart for the date of the start of the French Revolution, because we find Pluto at 19 degrees Aquarius, but we also find Saturn at 20 degrees of Pisces. So come March 23rd, 2023, Even though Saturn is still in very early degrees of Pisces, and Pluto will be at the earliest part of Aquarius, the roots of this pairing of planets is deep and complicated. 
And I want to mention that the way this podcast works is I may refer to things from previous episodes. Hopefully episodes are standalone, but they will always work together as an ongoing story. Because in the same way that astrological charts, at least the ones that I use, are depicted in the form of a circle, and as they say, the soul moves in circles, we will circle back to things. So if you haven't, it's worth listening to the earlier episodes. So this time period in the late 1700s, when Pluto was in Aquarius and Saturn was in Pisces, we have this combination of an air sign and its focus on intellectual thought, even the spirit of freedom that comes along with thought and debate. And we have the mysteries of the water sign, Pisces, the last stop before spring. So I see this the French Revolution, the start of the French Revolution, as a hinge moment. Thinking back to Salman Rushdie, I see it as a bridge between the kind of thought and the kind of consciousness that grew from the scientific revolution into the Age of Enlightenment. A bridge between that kind of thought and the kind emerging in the Romantic era. And as I said in the previous episode, the Romantic era emerged in part as a reaction to that hyper-analytical and rational mind of the Age of Reason, yet it also emerged as a natural next step. After the industrial French and American revolutions rearranged the order of the external world for many, the Romantic era continued that revolution internally, focusing on the interior life of the individual. As the external governing forces fell, an internal governing force emerged, the imagination. Most significantly, the Romantic era gave privilege to the imagination as a faculty higher and more inclusive than reason. So I'm starting to mingle Aquarian consciousness with Piscean consciousness, with Aquarian perceiving and Piscean perceiving. And if you're wondering when Mary Poppins is going to show up in this mix, here she comes. So we're going to zip back into the 1960s on August 27th, 1964, with Saturn at one degree Pisces, Mary Poppins, that great Piscean figure, arrived in movie theaters in great Piscean form, feet first. So as a representative of Saturn in Pisces, we're going to now zip back to the French Revolution while Pluto in Aquarius is shaking the very foundations of society after decades and centuries of sunlit clarity. Saturn in Pisces brings with it the dream. And right now, I can't think of any better way to merge these qualities, like two fish attached to each other and swimming in opposite directions, than the lullaby that Mary sings to the children. 
called Stay Awake. Of course, this is one of Mary Poppins' signature traits, to defy reason, to bring nonsense, and to bring emotion where it is lacking. You may remember in Mary Poppins, the father of the two young children is just a wee bit Saturnian. When he sings about the life he leads, he says, I feel a surge of deep satisfaction, much as a king astride his noble steed. When I return from daily strife to hearth and wife, how pleasant is the life I lead. He runs his home precisely on schedule. He tells us what he does at 601, 602, and 603. And as a banker, he lets us know that a British bank is run with precision. Remember the Enlightenment? A British home requires nothing less. Tradition, discipline, and rules must be the tools. Without them, disorder, catastrophe, anarchy. In short, we have a ghastly mess. So Mary Poppins begins to erode that sense, not unlike Maria in The Sound of Music, who arrives into the captain's life with his announcement that the first rule in this house is discipline. And this is not unlike the Robin Williams character in Dead Poet Society, who shows up in a school whose motto extols tradition, honor, discipline, and excellence. So how do we work with this time? When Saturn is in Pisces and Pluto is in Aquarius? I'll have more to say about that a little later. But if we look at that song, or if you listen to that song that Mary Poppins sings to the young children, Stay Awake, a lullaby as they're heading to bed to the words, stay awake, don't rest your head, don't lie down upon your bed. While the moon drifts in the skies, stay awake, don't close your eyes. Though the world is fast asleep, though your pillow soft and deep, you're not sleepy as you seem, stay awake. Don't nod and dream. Stay awake. Don't nod and dream. And of course, they fall asleep. But this is the archetypal dynamic of this combination. So I'm not suggesting fall asleep, but I'm also not suggesting the daylight consciousness is the answer as Pluto moves into Aquarius. Pluto, that lord of the underworld, the lord of the invisible realm, the unseen. And is there anything more mysterious than death? Is there anything more mysterious than the soul? So Pluto in Aquarius seeks a transformation of society from the edges, from the margins, those places closest to the darkness closest to the mysteries, farthest away from the sunlit center, and were asked to both stay awake and to dream.
So now to go back to this pivotal time, the Enlightenment comes to an end, the French Revolution begins to radically change centuries of tradition, and in a little college town in Germany, we find the roots of Romanticism. The little town is Jena, probably pronounced Jena in German. And if you want to read a fantastic book about these roots, it's called Magnificent Rebels, The First Romantics and the Invention of the Self by Andrea Wolf, W-U-L-F. So as the French Revolution is taking place, new ideas and new perspectives are still emerging. And Andrea Wolf describes the coming together of men and women in Jena, Germany, where students are attending lectures, for example, by Johann Gottlieb Fichte, who is literally forming a new philosophy in front of his students. It almost reminds me of the Robin Williams character in Dead Poets Society. So even though it's slightly repetitive, I want to read a couple of passages, descriptions by Andrea Wolf of what the world was like back then, as these men and women who had come to be known as the Romantics were living in. She says, They were born into a world so different from ours that it's hard to imagine a Europe ruled by monarchs who determined much of their subjects' lives. The French king's palace at Versailles, with its gilded halls of mirrors and glorious gardens, radiated absolute power across France at a time when many of the nation's people lived in abject poverty. Just as the gardens and trees were corseted into clipped topiary, laid out in rays of straight avenues and forced into elaborate patterns, so too the French people were bound to their destiny by birth and the king. Nothing was allowed to be out of place. Everything was bent and shaped according to the divine right. So she calls the men and women who are gathering here over a few years, the Yenna set. And she says, the world in which the members of the Yenna set grew up was one of despotism, inequality, and control. Then, in 1789, came the French Revolution, an event so pivotal and dramatic, no one in Europe was unaffected. It was like an eruption or a detonation. When the French revolutionaries declared all men equal, it suggested the possibility of a new social order founded on the power of ideas and freedom. Things are becoming reality, Novalis wrote in 1794, which 10 years ago would have gone straight to the philosophical madhouse. The French Revolution proved that ideas were stronger than the might of kings and queens. So as the revolution was taking place, and Johann Fichte is giving his lectures in Jena, one of his ideas focuses on, and as I've said, the external governing forces were falling, 
and an internal governing force was emerging, Johann Fichte was describing this internal force as the Ich, the I-C-H, the German word for I. And I'm going to take his very complicated ideas. And in a way, this avenue of his philosophy, this developing philosophy of the I, emerges. I can summarize an essential piece of it where Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Fichte would say, I feel, therefore I am. Romanticism privileged the emotions and deep, intense feeling. And if you want to see how wild astrology really is, Descartes, Mr. I think, therefore I am, was born with the sun in Aries, the north node in Aries, Uranus in Aries, Jupiter in Aries, Pluto in Aries, and Mercury in Aries. Meanwhile, Johann Fichte, centuries later, was born with the moon in Aries, Uranus in Aries, Saturn in Aries, and Jupiter in Aries. They both were born with Neptune in Leo, and Descartes' Pluto at 18 degrees is conjunct Fichte's Saturn at 19 degrees, and Fichte's Uranus at 11 degrees is conjunct Descartes' Uranus at 14 degrees of Aries. I file that under, you can't make this up. And this move from, I think, therefore I am, to I feel, therefore I am, from Enlightenment values to the values of the Romantic era, via the French Revolution, is an amazing example, to me, of what Pluto and transformation are really about. Like I said, this book by Andrea Wolfe is called Magnificent Rebels, The First Romantics and the Invention of the Self. So even though Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, it wasn't quite the same as this I feel, therefore I am that came out of the Romantic era because of this new self that was emerging brought with it the full span of emotion, the full dynamic range of feeling. And here's where we can make a connection through the work of James Hillman and his archetypal psychology. His first published book, which I understand to be his dissertation, is called Emotion. And of course, archetypal psychology and the thread woven throughout Hillman's work is the imagination. And what I'm getting at here is that link between emotion and image, between emotion and imagination, is that to be really engaged in the imagination is to be engaged with feeling, with emotion. Hillman even says that our images are emotions in another form, 
and emotions are images in another form. It's like if you're not connected with emotion, something else is going on. And this is important emerging from the French Revolution and into the Romantic era, because one of the profound differences between the Age of Enlightenment and the Romantic era is the focus on science in the former and the focus on culture and the arts in the latter. So this self that emerged from the Romantic era, the self that we understand implicitly with self-awareness, self-reflection, self-obsession, self-consciousness, and self-esteem is a creative self. And it's through the imagination that we create culture. As I was talking about earlier in this episode, the way astrology reflects the connections with the archetypal dynamics found in the zodiac. When Saturn and the outer planets were moving through Leo, it brought with it a certain kind of culture, which was very different, though similar, when Saturn and the outer planets moved through Aquarius. I've brought in Saturn in Pisces here, in particular because Saturn rules the sign of Aquarius, which means that, in a way, Saturn is calling the shots while Pluto is moving through Aquarius. And that means, for the next two to three years, that is Saturn in Pisces. So when I bring in that song by Mary Poppins, and the notion of staying awake while dreaming... It might be that our task with dreaming is to wake up the kind of imagination required to meet the challenges of our times. Now, I always run the risk in this podcast of using too many quotes, but if there was ever an episode to take that risk, this one is it. But sometimes it's the only way that I can really take all of these different pieces and pull them together. So we're going to head back to 2023 by way of Toni Morrison again. In one of the essays in her book, The Source of Self-Regard, she reflects on the past and says, following the demise of the much maligned 60s and 70s, this is the 1960s and 1970s, following the demise of the much maligned 60s and 70s, during which there was an actual, contested, fought over, fought for, and fought against public and publicly expressed life. It seems unlikely that there will ever be a decade like that, where issues of conscience, morality, law, and ethics were liberationist rather than oppressive. What she's describing, I feel, is what I covered in the first episode of the podcast, The Old Man and the Sea Goat, is it's this presence of the old man consciousness, represented by Saturn and Capricorn and Pluto and Capricorn in particular, that creates almost like a Saturn revolution, the get-off-my-lawn culture. It's very different than the late 1700s. And when I think of the state of things today, the state of culture, the state of the world, 
And of course, I'm speaking from the West, from the United States. And I think of where we're at in the wake of those historical periods I just described. I think of the importance of what that song, Stay Awake, represents symbolically, archetypally, if we root it 248 years ago and almost 500 years ago. Where we're at today is it seems like the legacy of liberation from 248 years ago and the storming of the Bastille. It's like the knowledge of the encyclopedia, which became Wikipedia during those transits of planets in Aquarius in the early 2000s, is now poised with the emergence of artificial intelligence today. It's as if the legacy of I think, therefore I am, and the sunlit consciousness, the sunlit clarity of the Enlightenment can be seen today in the mental health crisis. Consciousness exclusively is exhausting. Even Jung said that. Too much light, no shadows. Work on those shadows, get rid of those shadows. I think of going into a Target store or most any other department store. It's light everywhere. Fluorescent lights, in fact, everywhere. No shadows because things go down in the shadows. People can steal things. So get rid of the shadows. Light 24-7. It's hard to get a good night's sleep when the lights are on all the time. And I'm speaking symbolically. And while I'm a huge fan of the Romantic era, we might follow Fichte's I feel, therefore I am. He didn't say that. That's my paraphrasing and mirroring Descartes' statement, but true to Fichte's ideas. I feel, therefore I am, shows up today where heart disease is the number one killer. And in ancient Greece, the heart was considered the center of imagination. And while I didn't go into it, a big part of the Romantic era was its focus on the natural world, the importance of nature in a world becoming increasingly industrial. It's like 248 years ago, focusing on the natural world, we now have a climate crisis. So what happened to that focus on the natural world? So with Saturn in Pisces and Pluto in Aquarius, It's like the mingling of these two forms of consciousness, which we might summarize as consciousness and unconsciousness, the sun and the moon, the enlightenment and the romantic era, science and the arts. And I've got four quotes here, each from Jungian perspectives that might help us out here. One from Carl Jung himself, from memories, dreams, reflections. This quote doesn't come out very often, where he says our unconscious existence is the real one, and our conscious world a kind of illusion. That's something to ponder. Our unconscious existence is the real one. Now, Hillman in one of his essays in his Senex and Puer volume, says all consciousness depends upon fantasy images. 
And you may or may not know the work of Lynn Cowan, a Jungian based in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, who studied under Hillman in the Zurich Institute, and who sadly passed away last year, in a collection of essays called Tracking the White Rabbit. She has a wonderful essay where, in the same way that I talk about Dorothy and Kansas and Oz, she takes us into Wonderland with Alice. And she says, I don't think consciousness means being centered or in a carefully arranged balance or getting out of Wonderland. I think it means being able to see the Wonderland dimension of life even when you're awake. Like Alice, after she woke up, when our eyes are open, we ought not to be too absolutely sure which is the dream and which is the reality. And she also says, the Tweedles, you know, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, she says, the Tweedles are right. The psyche's image-making capability makes us real, generates us as imaginal creatures. When we live in a dream, we live also in a deeper realm, an additional dimension of meaning below the surface, below the superficial behaviors and activities that give us only partial identities. Now, those are a lot, but I believe you can see the thread woven between those four quotes that brings out the importance of imagination. So perhaps the kind of liberation required at this time to move out of the old man culture is the freedom of the psyche, the freedom of the soul, the freedom of the imagination, to hear Hillman himself say it. You've got to give autonomy. That's the best thing you can give to the psyche, is its freedom. And with that, I'd like to close this episode and let you know that on April 15th, I will be giving a talk for the San Diego chapter of NCGR. It's a webinar. It's called Saturn in Pisces and Pluto in Aquarius, Dream Time and the World to Come. I'll be talking more about Saturn in Pisces and Pluto in Aquarius, obviously. You'll get to see the slides I come up with for that instead of just listening to me. And I'll be putting all of this in the context of the greater cycles we're in, particularly the Saturn-Neptune cycle, which comes to an end and a new beginning in February of 2026. I'll be putting registration information on my Instagram page, which is Sean Nygaard. Just look me up. And I'll be sending out to my mailing list, which you can sign up for at imagineastrology.com. And in the meantime, I've got more podcast episodes in the works to have guests come on for some actual conversations. But in the next episode, there's a little more to say about Pluto in Aquarius in part two. This is Sean Nygaard with Imagine That, a podcast for astrology and archetypes. Thank you for listening.